George Owen was pretty smart. Not because he went to Harvard, but because as a hockey player for the Boston Bruins, he realized something about hockey. Two things, actually. In hockey, you're skating between 20 and 30 miles an hour, surrounded by other people going the same speed, carrying pointed sticks, and surrounded by boards and glass. And number two, people are shooting a hard rubber disc at speeds up to 50 or 70 miles an hour right at your face. No, George Owen, defenseman for the Boston Bruins, figured out something really smart. He wore a helmet. He was the first NHL player to regularly wear a helmet while playing hockey. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a minute to talk about helmets, safety, fear, risk, and guts. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. And this is a podcast. It's a podcast produced by Alex DePama. Alex is a bit of a podcast whisperer. Alex and I are inviting you to join us in the podcasting workshop. And this is Alex DePama, Seth's co-teacher and producer. In this class, you'll learn not just the technology to make a podcast, because honestly, it's pretty easy. You'll learn to find your voice. You'll learn to find the others. And together in this proven workshop that's back again, you'll discover that you can make a podcast. Not to make money, because unfortunately, you probably won't. But to make a difference, to be heard, and to find the people who want to hear from you, which is even more important. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. After that first season of George Owen wearing a helmet, Barney Stanley, a player coach not related to the Stanley of the Stanley Cup, presented a helmet design to the Board of Governors of the NHL. It was instantly rejected. It's worth noting that George Owen played hockey in 1928. And it wasn't until more than 40 years later that another Boston Bruin, Ted Green, started wearing a helmet regularly. 40 years went by, 40 years of concussions, of head injuries, of goalies like Gump Worsley not even wearing a face mask as hockey pucks were drilled right at their face, nobody wearing a helmet. In 1968, Bill Masterson was killed in a hockey game from a brain injury. And suddenly, 40 years later, hockey players started to pay attention to the fact that they were taking really significant risks with their life by not wearing one. So what happened? Almost no one wore a helmet. Then in 1972, something extraordinary happened. A few years after Masterson's death, the Soviet Union, in a sign of detente, with North America, sent over its hockey team. A team of Soviet players came to Canada to play a seven-game series against Canadian All-Stars from the NHL. One thing you would have noticed, even if you weren't a hockey fan, was this. Every single one of the players for the Soviet Union was wearing a helmet. On the NHL side, there were only three or four players wearing a helmet. The vivid contrast between hardworking, brave, powerful, and successful hockey players all wearing helmets, looking out for their own 
personal safety compared to the macho, still great hockey players not wearing helmets was pretty profound. Within seven years, the rules of the NHL had changed. My memory of the 70s is this, that if a player was wearing a helmet, they often failed to buckle the strap. Not buckling the strap was a way of saying to fellow players, hey guys, my wife is making me wear the helmet, but I'm as brave as you are. Harvard George Owen, yes, his first name was actually Harvard, and yes, he went to Harvard, lived long enough to see Ted Green and all the others begin to wear helmets. And that must have been bittersweet for him, because on one hand, he did the right thing, playing for years and years, ignoring the taunts of his fellow players, preserving his health, and setting an example, even though it was ignored by every other player in the entire league. Often, sports analogies are insufficient to help us figure out what to do in the real world. But in this case, I think the message is pretty profound. Why exactly does someone play hockey? Even today, hockey players are underpaid compared to other sports like basketball, and you lose your teeth, etc., etc. No, I think playing hockey is a statement, a statement about who you are, who you want to be, and how you are seen by the others. And they do this on television. They are making a statement about living a certain kind of life in front of a whole bunch of people. But it's their peers that they are mostly striving to be accepted by because it's a team sport. Life is also a team sport, and each of us is on a team. And so the questions are, how are we choosing to play whatever game we are playing, whether it's investing, whether it's the way we come to work, whether it's how we comport ourselves in the outside world? What does it mean to insist that your kids wear a helmet when they go sledding, even if their friends aren't wearing a helmet when they go sledding? What does social pressure do to us as we make choices? And what should industry, institutions, and the government do to normalize certain sorts of behavior? It wasn't until the NHL mandated that helmets were required that helmets became widely worn. Because then the players could grumble and say, well, I don't want to wear a helmet, but they're making me. It's worth noting that the NHL made an exception for players who were already in the league when they made the rule, and plenty of veterans persisted in not wearing a helmet. Then they made a rule that referees had to wear a helmet, and amazingly, several of them refused to wear a helmet for the rest of their career. Back to this idea of how it affects our culture. If the government hadn't mandated that seatbelts be required in every car, it is really unlikely that seatbelts would be in every car. It was only because they had to be there, that we all had to pay for them, that you could expect that seatbelts would be in your car. If they were an extra cost option, many people would have chosen not to install them. Because your car, like your hockey helmet, or lack thereof, says a lot about who you are in America in 1968 or 1975. That when we think about the dark patterns that social media sites put in place, the things that are default, the things that are shown, the things that are not shown, many of these defaults determine 
whether or not we're going to wear a helmet. You've probably heard the story about what happens when they take a 401k, a retirement plan, and instead of making it opt-in, where you have to voluntarily fill out a piece of paper to put your savings into a 401k, they make it opt-out, giving everyone the same amount of freedom to do it or not do it. But once the pattern is in place, compliance can as much as double because people, while they want to fit in, are also lazy. And when you put those two pieces together, when you establish a standard, and when the easiest path is to follow the standard, then more people will follow the standard. So think about all of the things that we do growing up, going to a keg party, deciding to make a choice about going to a famous college and going in debt to do so. Almost all of these decisions made by 17-year-olds who have no business making almost any decision are made because people are looking around and asking, what's everyone else doing? So freedom, freedom is an interesting concept because most of us would agree that long-term decision-making made by rational people who have an understanding of what it means to be in society is probably something we want to let consenting adults do on their own. That that level of freedom in our society gives us the chance to become who we want to become. But that is really different than saying to somebody, oh, you want to text while driving? Go ahead. It's up to you. Because no, it's actually not up to you. Because if you're texting while driving, you might crash into me. And I wasn't texting while driving, but I'm still dead. And so when we let the phone companies put these devices into the world without a simple bit of software that would have made it impossible to text while driving, we as a community made a mistake, a fatal mistake, a mistake that has killed hundreds of thousands of people because we mistakenly believed that people would choose to not text while driving. The same way George Owen had a hunch that people would choose to wear a helmet. Normalizing rational behavior, super important. We'd like to believe it comes from the grassroots, that if you give people in the grassroots enough chance to figure out how the world works, they'll figure out how the world works and it will become normal. But in fact, that's almost never the case. In 2004, I wrote a blog post that I consider a turning point on my blog because it's one of the first posts that really sounds like me. It's called The Provincetown Helmet Insight, and it goes like this. In 2004, I was in Provincetown with my wife. We went to a wedding of a work colleague, and while we were there, we decided to go for a bike ride. On our way to the bike rental store, we saw plenty of people on the bike path, and what I noticed an amazing coincidence is that couples, either both of them were wearing a helmet or neither of them was wearing a helmet. And I thought really hard about this. And I said to myself, maybe it's Darwinian that people who are helmet wearers are attracted through the dating process to other helmet wearers. And they get to Provincetown and are delighted to discover that they're both helmet wearers. I realized this was extremely unlikely. So I figured something was happening in the bike store that was leading the decision to be made in a group. So I put the bike store under surveillance. Well, actually, I just waited in line for five minutes while we were waiting our turn. 
And what I saw couple after couple is exactly the same thing would happen. The proprietor would take a credit card, wheel out the bikes, and then say to the couple, would you like to rent helmets? They're a dollar each. And the two people would look at each other. And whoever spoke first won. So if one person said yes, then they both took helmets. And if one person said no, neither took a helmet. And so the power went to the person who spoke first. It wasn't a conversation. It wasn't a meeting. It was whoever either cared the most or was simply the dominant spokesperson in the couple in that moment decided for both of them. So the insight, the Provincetown Helmet Insight, is that we can change the system itself. If it's important for us as a culture, for the people who pay for the ambulance and the medical bills, for the people who don't want to be surrounded by folks who are either in the cemetery or dealing with a lifelong head injury, the owner of the bike store, perhaps prodded by their insurance company or a government regulation, could say the following. Would you like to take helmets? Everyone does. They're a dollar each. And then put two helmets in the hands of the couple that's standing at the counter. Now, the social pressure is really profound. We're not forcing you to wear a helmet, but what we've just done is made it with a helmet in your hand, with your partner with a helmet in their hand. If you don't want to wear helmets, you've got to say no and put the helmet back. That is different. The presumption was that people like us, we wear helmets. Are you people like us? In or out? And that is the opportunity that we have as we try to change the culture, to normalize behaviors that will benefit all of us. Once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, or you just want to see the show notes, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Three juicy questions this week on a wide variety of topics. Here we go. Hi, Seth. I'm Maya from Argentina, and I help creators, specifically musicians, encouraging them to ship their creative work into the world and find their tribes. One of the many eye-opening ideas I've learned from you is the one of owning a long tail as a series of blog posts, podcast episodes, etc., which goes 
perfectly in line with the idea of delivering creative work over a long time, patiently and consistently. I feel like I'm doing it, proud of my hundreds of YouTube videos and podcast episodes. But what I notice more and more is that people, even those most connected to my work, have a hard time finding what they need. The more videos, the more episodes there are, the harder it is to find my specific thoughts, a particular concept over hours and hours of audio and video. In one-on-one meetings with these people, for example, in the Zoom classes, I often refer them to a particular video where I know they will find what they are asking me about. And their response is usually, thank you, I have seen many of your videos, but I didn't know you had this one. So my question is, are we heading towards a world where the classification, the categorization of the content has a value in itself? I mean, is it a valuable work we can do, investing time and energy in classifying our own content or others' content as well? Or do we just have to go ahead expressing as many times as necessary the same ideas, adding new reflections, of course, thinking that if we do it enough times, they will be found anyway. Beyond that, I'm thinking that one of the advantages of Twitch, for example, over YouTube, about live streaming for musicians, is that Twitch has a specific music room with filters by tag, journal, language, etc. So while it is impossible on a Saturday night, for example, to say I want to watch a Bossa Nova live streaming concert on YouTube, on Twitch it is perfectly possible. There's an episode of Akimbo where you talk about taxonomy and categorization. And both that one and the one where you talk about curation seem to me to be key to understanding a future where we are going to be lost in oceans of content. But of course, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you for all your work. Thank you for this, Maya. Thanks for the work you're doing. As somebody who has populated the internet with 8,000 bits of information that I sweated over, that I cared about, that I would like to share with others, I feel your pain. But I'm not sure the problem is the one that you are describing. The problem is actually my pain, your pain, not the fact that the listener, the reader, the watcher can't find what they are looking for. Because YouTube search and Google, when it's working properly, they can surface something if someone knows that they are looking for it, but they probably don't. They probably haven't read my post first 10 or the other 17 posts I wish they would read right here, right now in this moment, because it's all out there. And so what we have to do as creators is move out of the, this is my one and only chance. This is my greatest hits album. This is it. That mindset, which is a mindset based on scarcity, a mindset based on promoting the thing, a mindset based on perfect, and instead realize that what we're doing is blowing on the dandelion and the seeds will go far and wide and we have no idea where they're going to land. And most people aren't going to read the post they need when they need it, but we have no way to give them the post they need when they need it. So instead, with reckless generosity and abandon, we put our work out there and we hope that people bump into it. And it's okay if they don't, and it's okay if they do. 
Uh, following up on your podcast from last week, I have a question on, you mentioned Netflix and we're talking through things there. Um, you mentioned a big part about Netflix's strategy is having their customers push out, you know, ideas to their friends and, and keep the whole network effect going there. And one thing I've always said to my friends, and I have to think that Netflix has thought of this and I wonder why they haven't. And I'm guessing you probably know the answer why is why doesn't Netflix apply a social feature where I'm watching a show, I can say at Bob, my friend, you need to watch this show ASAP, a lot like you tag somebody on Instagram. Um, why don't they allow a friend's feature to have that network within the Netflix system? And uh, that would help spread ideas and keep people on Netflix longer. Again, I have to think they thought of this, but um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks again, Seth. Bye. Thank you for this, Nick. Yes, you've highlighted one of two problems that I can't figure out about Netflix. So I don't have an answer, but I want to highlight this. Problem one, as you've just said, is since most people are engaging with Netflix while they have a device in their hands that also can be logged into Netflix, why doesn't Netflix have an easy way for us to communicate with other people that in this moment we are watching something? Or maybe there's just a discussion board about this thing. There's a hundred ways that they could inject conversation about what's going on in front of us with people that we care about, viewing parties at a distance, and on and on. And the second one, the one I can't understand, and I asked Mark Randolph, co-founder of Netflix, about this. He doesn't know either. At the beginning, it made a lot of sense for Netflix to offer binge-watching because nobody else had the guts to do that. Netflix was able to say, hey, watch all you want. We got plenty. We're not going to run out. And that was an attraction. It got people to sign up for Netflix. But now that Netflix is seeing slowing growth, they're in a different business. They've got to feed the beast and not run out of programming. Also, if we are watching a show and we're ahead of our friends, we can't talk about it. That's the opposite of what happened in 1966 when you went to school after an episode of Star Trek. You had to talk about it because everyone had seen it the night before. In every revolution, there's one man with a vision. Now we don't know when other people are watching. So I can't figure out why Netflix doesn't switch back to the system that is must-watch TV, that everybody is going to watch the first episode of Lupin Season 2 on the same day. And next week, when the second episode goes live, we'll all watch it at the same time. I can't figure out why they're not doing that. Hey, Seth. It's Isaac from Cincinnati again. I had a question about two of your recent episodes, Curation and Is Seth Real? The past couple of years, I've found as a music fan that algorithmic music recommendations have grown pretty stale for me, but I've completely fallen in love with online radio through platforms like NTS and Mixcloud kind of feels like there's a bottleneck happening with Spotify and other algorithmic playlists. And I've come to realize how much of a filtered experience places like Spotify are. So my question for you is, what role do you see algorithms and AI playing in the future of curation? And if you want to peel the onion back a little more, what role do you see AI playing in the future of creative fields like art and music? Thanks for this, Isaac. We get back to the statement, people like us do things like this. Curation matters. And in music, one of the reasons it matters is we want to listen to what our peers are listening to. And so we rely on Wolfman Jack 
or Dick Clark or a playlist on Spotify to tell us what everybody else is listening to. And I'm not sure Wolfman Jack was really the curator. It could be he was just taking money from whoever paid him the most with something acceptable. But the fact remains, we look to the curator in certain pop culture places simply because we all want to agree on what we're doing, which means that it's okay if an AI picks it. But there are other areas where we are interested in being more discerning, being more unique, being more idiosyncratic. And in those areas, I think human beings are going to be in the forefront for a little while longer because the quirkiness that a human being can bring to certain kinds of selection still outperforms most AI. I know that a book recommendation from a friend almost always outperforms one from Amazon. That doesn't mean AI won't keep getting better. It will. But I just want to reiterate that the core idea of curation in pop culture is that we are all looking to the same curator. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.